So like the kid had not spoken to anybody, his parents or the therapists or anybody else. Right. And so literally, you know, 10, 15 minutes with a bunch of baby turtles. And uh, the next thing you know, I like to say he came out of his shell. Right. Uh, but, uh, no, the kid um, uh, came right back and uh, they came back every weekend ever since, you know, with uh, mom and dad, you know, after that for, for a number of years. Classic, just toss them overboard when you're sitting having lunch, or you know, just anything like that. The classic. We actually were joking about setting up an OnlyFins account. Here's to us all swimming through the shit and making more sense of it. Wow, and unprotected. Planet Earth, we can't neglect it. Ah, nature's sexy. We need this place, so please respect it. Hey everyone, welcome back to. The Wild and Unprotected Podcast. On today's episode, we have the Executive Director of the National Save the Sea Turtle Foundation, Larry Wood. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hey, Larry, how's it going? Good. Nice to talk to you, Ethan. Yeah, happy to have you on the show. Hey, this is, I think, our first uh, sea turtle uh, episode out of uh, almost 20 episodes now. So uh, Thanks for taking uh, thanks for taking the baton for the first time with sea turtles for us on the show. We're excited. Sounds good to me. There's a lot more to do with sea turtles. Glad I could at least get you started here. <laughs> Incredible. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and give the audience a little bit um, about you know a backstory about Larry. Uh, how'd you get started, and um, you know, kind of ease us into a little bit about you and what you do now. Oh well. Uh, <laughs> So I guess I uh, like many children. Uh, when I was young, I liked uh, dinosaurs. I was fascinated by you know the uh, going to the museums and seeing all the bones and everything. It was a paleontology became kind of this thing for me when I was really young, and uh, so somehow or another that kind of stuck. And I never really had any particular interest in doing much else than you know something related to animals or biology or whatever it was. And then by the time I got to somewhere around like, you know, junior high, it, it kind of dawned on me that I, I couldn't directly work with the living dinosaurs. You know, you could have the bones <laughs> and all that. It's kind of cool. You could dig them up from the earth, but you really couldn't see them wandering around. So I turned my attention a little bit more to uh, the living reptiles, you know, like lizards kind of in my mind, you know, resembled dinosaurs the mo most closely. Now we know a little different, but anyway, at the time I thought it was. So I became interested in reptiles. And so I started a little hobby, you know, like kids uh, collect, you know, lizards and snakes and things. And uh, this was all up in Western Pennsylvania. So I lived out in uh, a nice rural area so I could, you know, go out to the creeks and find all kind of neat animals and everything. And um, that kind of just kept on going. And I realized that somewhere along the way, I'd probably like to be um, a biologist or perhaps, you know, work in a zoological park or something like that, you know. And so anyhow, that's that's how I got started. And um, I found myself on a uh, literally a vacation from college when I was about 21. Uh, and I was visiting my grandparents in South Florida. So I was in, you know, living in Western Pennsylvania, going to school in Ohio. And um, I came down and I was thinking, well, this is kind of a nice climate, you know, maybe there's some job, you know, in, in reptiles. Well, there's a pipe dream, right? So I ended up looking in the newspaper, which is what we did back then. Uh, and sure enough, there was a, an ad for somebody to 
essentially it was raise baby sea turtles at this little tiny facility in this little town called Juno Beach, which I had never heard of before. It's in northern Palm Beach County. And uh, so I was thinking, what do I have to lose? So I, I called him and I got an interview. And uh, so I it was all actually in the time of this week long vacation. And so I, I got an interview a few days later and um, it was a very tiny little place. It was an old brick building that was built in the forties as a motel. And uh, a woman who had moved to the Juno beach area prior, uh, she was an elderly woman and her husband, uh, she had this eccentric personality and she became known as this turtle lady who would always be wandering the beaches, collecting shells and sponges and all kind of bio artifacts, you know, they call them. And it happened to be a place where the sea turtles would also lay eggs on the beach. So she would, not in any disruptive way, but she would help the hatchlings and move the eggs. At the time, there were a little different rules than there are, but nonetheless, in a very positive way. So she became uh, kind of well-known, like in the community, as uh, this, this turtle lady that everybody wanted to go follow around on the beach. So... She had so much stuff piled up on her back porch <laughs> that her husband highly encouraged her to find a place to keep this stuff. And so she ended up founding this little place called the Children's Museum of Juno Beach, where essentially housed all this stuff that she had collected. But the twist on the story is that they happened to install three big, large tubs, like fiberglass uh 2000 gallon um, tubs. And, and with some forethought before I got there, they built a intake system from the beach. This place was right next to the beach. So they had salt water being pumped in to these tanks. So by the time I had gotten there and showed up for this interview, they had already started raising green sea turtles. And so green turtles nowadays are doing better than they were, but they're a very endangered species. And there is an experiment going on where the thought was if you could raise them in captivity till they got to be too big, you know, maybe to get eaten by the fish there along the beach, that you could release them and they would have a better chance of survival, right? And so I'm really never seen a sea turtle in that way before, you know. And uh, I remember going out during this interview, I got the interview, and uh, they gave me a little tour, and I saw this these tubs full of these little green turtles, and I just fell in love, you know. At that point, I was like, yeah, oh, I got to get this job, you know. <laughs> so at whatever cost. So the cost was getting the job that I had to, you know, leave school and move down to Florida, not knowing what would happen at this little tiny place, which was very underfunded and, you know, always scraping around for the last few dollars just to stay open. So I guess that's how it all started. And instead of the little place closing, the little place gradually grew. So now this little tiny building became... They added on a little wing to it, and then we got some trailers added on. And then back in the 2005-ish range, said, oh, we need a new building altogether. So anyway, long story short is that place grew, and uh, I grew along with it doing science and my thing. And that kind of leads me oh, – I guess I should probably take a break here. <laughs> I'm talking a lot, so – Oh, no, no, no. You're good. You're you're rolling. Um, we, okay. We I want to know. I, oh, Okay. So, but that kind of leads me into the next thing is that while I was there, I was doing the research and I did the turtle hospital and I counted all the nests on the beach and all that kind of stuff, which is all very interesting. But 
I also like to scuba dive. And so every now and then we'd go scuba diving out there on the local reefs and we would come across this particular species of sea turtle that does not lay eggs on the beaches that I was so familiar with. So when I would go diving, I would find this whole different species, you know, that I very rarely saw in my day-to-day work with all the other ones. So I became a little fascinated and I, this is called the hawksbill turtle. And I also then very quickly realized because I'd been in this business for some time that there wasn't anybody else that was doing any research on them. There wasn't anybody that was really trying to categorize them or learn about their abundance or distribution or movements or just all the kind of that basic biology stuff that you like to do. So uh, when I was with the, with the, the facility, I said, well, maybe we can work in a little research program here where I can go out and see if I can't get some, you know, maybe capture them, get some tags on them, you know, start getting some catalogs on them. You start, once you get samples, you can learn about all their genetics. There's a variety of different things you can do with just taking a very small few samples uh, back to the lab. So uh, I began what's now called the Florida Hawksbill Project, and that was back in 2004. So that has become the focus of my research part of what I do for the foundation. And so we'll probably get back to the National Save the Sea Turtle Foundation in here a sec, but that's that kind of what, what ties in because when I uh, left the, the, the facility there that I had started this project at, uh, I then moved over to work with the National Save the Sea Turtle Foundation back in 2015. And so it worked out well because we all know in science and research that it's very difficult to find funding that's sufficient to not only do the work, but also make a living. You know, that's part of the, the challenge. You might be able to get some funding to do a project, but there may not be a lot of salary involved in such. It's just the way, way it goes. So I found that since this National Save the Sea Turtle Foundation had been funding partly anyway, my research with the Hawksbills over time anyway, that maybe we would make a good partner. I could bring this project under their umbrella, right? And then what they could do is, you know, to put it plainly, you know, fund my project, you know, they because they were looking for a research project that they potentially could, you know, underwrite. So it really came out to be a, a really good idea. And so that's how I got to, to work with the foundation um, starting in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I think a perfect transition point to talking about um, the National Save the Sea Turtle Foundation. Um, you said you moved over in 2015? correct yeah. um, to the mm-hmm. organization. Um, so what was your role then um, and how has it transitioned to what you do now? Well, the, at the time it was literally to be a research uh, biologist to you know run this project and coordinate with other uh, in- institutions, entities, colleagues, whatever it was to accomplish this. So um, that, uh, and I was an independent, you know, uh, contractor at the time, you know, I was just doing what I could. And, um, as I spent more time there, there were other needs that started to pop up, and it's a small organization, and one of them was a, a quarterly full-color magazine newsletter uh, that they published, very nicely done by a gentleman who unfortunately was getting uh, old, and his health was prohibiting him from doing that anymore, and so I kind of raised my hand, and I said, well, you know, I, I can probably do that too, you know, kind of thing, and so that started, uh, kind of expanded my role a little bit, and then, you know, another year goes by, and uh, one, th- one aspect of what I'll tell you about related to the foundation is we provide funding to various, um, you know, sea turtle-based 
causes, whatever we can get to that in a minute. But uh, they kind of needed somebody who knew who it was that would be most effective to partner with. Because the the gentleman that was doing that before would kind of go by reputation, but really didn't have the, what do you call the experience that I had with knowing the community and the sea turtle people and whose projects were likely, who's on the leading edge, who, you know, I mean, who, who would be the best for us to partner with is, is the idea. I, I, he kind of needed me to help guide where we should be uh, directing the funds that we were. Uh, so that kind of expanded the role <laughs> again. Uh, and then um, more recently, uh, the, the executive director who started the place, what is now 37 years ago, hard to believe, uh, is now uh, essentially ready to retire. And uh, so about six months ago, he uh, decided to pass the baton along to me as the executive director. So it's kind of just been a stepwise process of getting more and more involved with the place and um, helping him out in any way I can, really. Damn, that's a, I would say that's, that's an impressive climb. Um, from 2015, you know, just steadily adding, you know, more to kind of your plate of responsibility and eventually being able to take on kind of the head role. Um, that's, that's impressive. And congratulations since, you know, it's, it's kind of a, still a fresh thing. Moving into that role is, you know, always a big deal. Um, especially for a foundation that's 37 years old. Um, so props, props for that. That's, that's definitely a, a mountaintop moment, I can imagine. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's been at this a while now, so 30 or so years for me in sea turtles. So, yeah, it, it, it wasn't that fast to rise. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I finally got there, right? You know, so. Yeah, that's a running theme that we've seen with a lot of organizations is that, you know, these paths are not linear. Um, and if they were, then everyone would do them. You know, everyone would be in this space. But I think that's incredible to kind of, like Ethan said, uh, put more on your plate until you get to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, I think I'm ready to to take the baton and, and be an executive. So like, I, like Ethan said, props to you for that. Um, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's talk about what the organization does. Like what does the national save the sea turtle foundation do? Cause you, you mentioned the Hawksbill project, but there's sea turtles involved, you know, like for the general public out there, what do they need to know? Right. So the foundation was uh, started by this gentleman who just retired and uh, he um, he still is a businessman, but I use the past tense because we're going to back it up a little bit. But he was a businessman uh, living down in the Florida Keys and uh, he had a nice place with his friends uh, on the water. And it, this is going back 50 years. And he started to notice that the, the environment was sort of degrading there was more trash washing up on the beach. There was just uh, more dead fish, you know, just everything. The, the water quality didn't seem like it was. He just kind of noticed, and he's not a biologist or anything, but it's like, you know, living there, he noticed things were, were changing. And so uh, he started the foundation in an effort to try to raise some dollars through his various connections. You know, he, he was a, um, a broker, you know, boat broker, a yacht broker. Uh, so he was in the in the marine industries. Right. And so the marine industries have a vested interest in clean oceans, you know, if you can make that connection for them. And so what he was trying to do is, you know, make that connection and see if he couldn't raise money for some educational programs, um, money to give to other organizations, kind of like the one that I had worked at, you know, a long time ago, just, you know, whatever he could do with his connections and network, if you will, 
uh, to raise funds for uh, sea turtle causes, whatever those may be. He was never interested in building a facility or, or having a rehab center. He was mostly interested in, in, in raising money in the way he, ways he could and then helping others, you know, and of course, offering various brochures. He would set up uh, these booths at educational uh, events and things all about just, you know, educating people about clean oceans and sea turtles and everything. And so basically, you know, that just continued to grow over a long period of time. So like we were just talking about, it takes a long time for things to happen. And by the time, you know, 20 or 30 years goes by, the network and connection uh, had grown and grown. And so uh, people are, are kind enough to donate um, all kinds of things. But in particular, because they're in the boat industry, uh, we get a lot of offers for people to donate uh, boats. And so obviously to some degree, you know, we have to fix them up a bit, <laughs> uh, but then we're able, the way the way it works is we're able to provide those uh, for lease and then for eventual sale at a, at a good price. So let's say, you know, you may want to get rid of a boat that's a, a pain for whatever reason, you don't, it's, it's an expense to you. So if you donate to a nonprofit like ours, you get whatever the commensurate tax deduction may be for that. And obviously, you kind of the boat's out of your hands at that point. And people in the boat industry know sometimes it's greater just to get rid <laughs> than it is to put in a lot of money because they're very expensive. So anyhow, the the foundation then assesses the value of the boat and determines how much has to be invested in it before it can be placed back on the market again. And so then somebody can look to us to say, oh, I would like be interested in buying a boat and hey, I can support you guys and get a good deal on a boat, you know, by leasing to purchase or, or from us, you know. So then we use those proceeds uh, to support what has grown, as I mentioned over the years, from uh, just a couple organizations to now, without adding them all up, easily 15 different organizations, um, mostly focused in Florida, but sometimes a little bit beyond. Uh, I have a, a kind of another Hawksbill project going on in the uh, island of St. Croix over in the Virgin Islands. So that, that's something that's outside of Florida, but still closely related to, to what we're doing in Florida. <laughs> um, we have uh, scholarship programs. So as you can imagine, if you're a student and you want to go to graduate school and you want to study sea turtles, it makes sense that you would probably look to Florida to do that, right? Because we have a number of universities that have graduate programs that involve sea turtle research. So it's kind of a hub of sea turtle research. So each of these schools from University of Florida to UCF to FAU to FIU, there's a whole a number of them, uh, offer uh, scholarships. So we supply scholarship money to the schools so that the students that are applying to do sea turtle graduate work can get their tuition, you know, offset and that sort of thing. So we're trying to support the, the kids who want to pursue that particular research path. And so the scholarship program, I think, is great. Uh, we don't choose the kids. You know, that's up to the universities. But they at the same time, they get the benefit of not being burdened too much with that financial burden of a year of school, you know, and um, they can focus on their work then. So, yeah, and we've had some uh, award winning students. So some of the projects that we've uh, they've done, but we've helped to underwrite uh, have won awards at, at some of our international meetings. So we're very proud of them.
That's awesome. That's definitely one of my favorite programs um, that I saw that you guys do because in, in today's kind of educational climate, um, you know, graduate school, um, and, and even, you know, getting a, a, a base bachelor's degree is so incredibly expensive at a lot of these bigger universities because the universities have turned more into businesses than actual places of education. Um, so it's amazing that you guys do that. Uh, do you guys keep in touch with any of the students, um, that you provide scholarships for kind of long-term? Is that something that you, you guys do? Well, when you say it's funny in a way, because you say long term, I, I really this really got going this scholarship program in the way it's formed now, really ongoing at about 2018 or 19. So uh, the students that we have supported are still just graduating and getting situated. So, yeah, we haven't okay. had a lot of chance to do long term. However, uh, certainly there are some uh, students that will help me. Uh, volunteer perhaps on my research, you know, back to that Hawksbill thing. I, I go out into the mm -hmm. field and we have to scuba dive and snorkel and go all over the place. So there are students that uh, we have supported that um, will join us as volunteers or whatever. So, but yeah, long-term uh, remains to be seen. Before we get too far into this week's episode, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is you, our listeners. How? Well, now that we're a nonprofit, the donations that we receive go directly towards funding our shows. Want to help or need more information? Visit wildscapeproduction.com backslash donate to support the show. We're so thankful for the support. You make the show exactly what it is. Let's let's dive into the Hawksbill project and, and how you know how that ties into some of these um, you know students that are in the scholarship program. Um, do those go hand in hand? And if so, like what are some of the things that these uh, students can, you know, expect if they're if they're to join you on this? Well, the uh, relative uh, scarcity of what are called in-water research projects uh, provide anybody that's involved with a unique experience sort of to begin with. So the vast majority of sea turtle research is done, and, and wisely so, or focused on the females, the nesting, the hatchlings, everything you have easy access to when the animals are coming up onto the beach. So the researcher, so long as they don't mind staying up at night, has access to, you know, a whole suite of, of data, research, you name it. You can ask all kinds of questions about sea turtles and their babies while they're on the beach. So once they leave the beach as hatchlings, they become more and more difficult to find. So if you start researching or asking questions of the, you know, the life history of sea turtles in the ocean, there's a new challenge is how you're actually going to get there and encounter them and encounter them in a long enough period of time to do whatever it is that you're after. So kind of like doing whale or dolphin or walrus research, it doesn't really matter. That's suddenly now you're involving boats you know, you're involving captains, you're involving all new layers of qualifications for people, you know, so we are a little unique because there aren't that many projects in the state of Florida that are doing what we call in-water research. And so mine is a little bit more unique and it's the, the one that is focused on that species in particular, you know, sorry, sorry about that ding. Appreciate, wish I could turn that off, but anyway, um, 
So the students that end up coming out with this are getting kind of a unique opportunity because since there are so few projects that are out there in the water doing that, uh, anytime they're out with there with us, they're getting the opportunity to look at the techniques for capture and then look at the techniques for all the different sampling. And you know, we take their blood and their tissue and a variety of different other things back to the lab with us. So it's, um, and then of course, when we get the, those samples, those samples, samples have to be uh, properly stored and then, you know, sent and, and analyzed and so on. So also the process of maintaining, storing and um, fixing all those samples is very valuable to them as well. Yeah. Oh, man. I think one of the things that uh, people take for granted um, watching, you know, shows on Nat Geo and uh, HBO and Discovery, um, they see a lot of in-water research being done and they don't understand how expensive it is and how much of a privilege it is to actually be in water to study any of these animals. So, yeah, um, yeah. it's kind of cool that you bring light to, you know, how unique that can be and how great of an opportunity it is for students. Because most of them, you know, in, unless they're very well funded themselves, would never get that opportunity. Um, and I don't think people realize that. Um, so it's amazing that you guys do that. Um, what are some some research um, tactics or um, some projects that you guys do in the water? Where do you go? Um, things like that um, when it comes to in-water research. Well, uh, interesting about that. When I started the project, I, I was really just putting one foot in front of the other at the time. I, I hadn't been involved in this type of research before. I, as a scuba diver, would encounter hawksbills pretty frequently, and uh, their behavior is a little little unique among sea turtle species in that they, they don't really have as much of a uh, kind of a, what you call an aversion response to people. They pretty much just kind of keep going about their thing, even when scuba divers come up, you know, as long as you're not, you know, obviously rushing them or you, you can imagine, but I mean, just a normal everyday scuba diver just going along. Hawksbills are really quite complacent with people's presence, you know, and it, it kind of dawned on me that, you know, while I was underwater with them and taking pictures and everybody would, you know, they even had them named, you know, they would take pictures of particular individuals that would always be found in these certain places and all. And so, um, when uh, I was scuba diving along as well, I realized that I could probably get my hands on them, you know, without having to use any particular mechanized or any other fancy uh, netting. Or, or there's only so many ways you can catch a sea turtle in the water, you know, and one of them is just to try to get them in hand, you know. Well, the faster they are, the more challenging that becomes. And of course, as air breathing animals, it's not like we can just go chase them around underwater. And even when we get on scuba, we have nowhere near the speed, you know, to catch up with a sea turtle that decides it doesn't want to be captured, you know. So it's a very big challenge to uh, get these animals underwater. But I, I realized that this, this species was probably going to allow me uh, to do that. So um, I got with uh, a colleague who had been uh, working with hawksbills. She was kind of known as the, the hawksbill expert of the time, uh, Dr. Ann Malin. And I had a discussion with her about what the opportunities might be uh, for me, using this aggregation here in Palm Beach, because I didn't know how many there were, but I did know that there. Every time we go diving, almost every time we would see hawksbills, you know. So I mean, it, it wasn't like they were rare in the sense that I could probably come across them on a pretty regular basis. And so, would that be the start, you know, to a research project? But 
you know, I was really kind of like shrugging my shoulders thinking this is a neat idea, but, you know, so I went ahead and I, I applied for permits. And I, I remember one of the questions, you know, that was returned to me, they're sort of like, you expect to do this on scuba, you know, because the, the reefs there are um, in Palm Beach anyway, the shallowest you're going to find these animals is 45 feet and the generally all the way down to 90, 100 feet, you know, so you have to, you know, be scuba diving to get these things. So that was kind of the first question is whether that was even possible. So wouldn't you know, they end up giving me the permits and um, wouldn't you know, I got out there and, and I remember, it was, I think it was um, February of 04 and um, managed to grab the first turtle and bring it to the surface. So the way that works is you uh, obviously approach the turtle and then you have to have uh, at least one other person because once I grab a hold of the turtle at maybe 70 feet of water, then we have to make our way to the surface, uh, you know, at the at safe gradual prescribed rate. ascent rate if you're into scuba diving, right? So you got to kind of go up at a controlled rate. And since my hands are occupied, I have no control necessarily over my buoyancy control device or whatever. So the other person's job is to make sure that me and the turtle and that themselves, you know, I'll get to uh, the surface at a safe ascent rate. And then uh, once we get to the surface, uh, the boat, in this case, usually regular commercial dive operators that operate out of the area here who are very, um, they're pleased to have us along. They think it's great, you know, that they're, that we have doing the research. So then we get the turtle onto the boat. And um, from there, then we take a variety of measurements we take a variety of samples of their skin and shell, uh, blood, we whatever else may, we may be having interest in at the time. Uh, then, of course, we photograph them and then we tag them. So if they're seen again, we can identify them as ones we've already encountered. So we put a couple of different kind of tags in there. And then on occasion, we would put satellite tracking devices on them, but that's a uh, specialized uh, thing that's very expensive. So... We've only uh, done that to a few out of the many uh, turtles that we've put tags on. So, yeah, that's uh, that's how we do it in the deep water. And then when we go to the Keys and the shallow water, the uh, it's all snorkeling. So we get a whole group of people. Uh, it's their my assistants that are all pre, you know, chosen and everything. Maybe, to be honest, but five, six of us. And we all get in the water and... We snorkel around the reefs until somebody potentially encounters a, a hawksbill. And then uh, they just kind of notify the rest of the group, you know, putting their hand up out of the water and sort of going over here, you guys, you know. And so the rest of us then make our way over there and we do what we can to uh, kind of corral and chase the, the smaller ones tend to be a little more difficult. They're not quite accustomed yet to people. So sometimes it takes a little extra effort to get the smaller ones. But we don't have to use scuba down there. We can do that uh, on snorkel. So uh, those are kind of the two different approaches that we have to, to, to capturing them. But no, they're very, uh, again, that species is a little unusual in that it allows, uh, they allow us on average uh, to get close enough to get our hands on. So. I can tell that's your favorite part is the hands-on experience. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. No, I mean, uh, that's... Um, no, you know, I think the best part is when you first see them. Mm. If there's a part of it when you're going along and you're, you maybe hadn't seen one in a while, they're not common. You know, we, we right. can spend literally two days, six, seven hours in the water down in the Keys snorkeling around and not see one. You know what I mean? So to be honest with you, I think the best uh, part of it is when you first 
get that glimpse because then at least you know that you're on to something, <laughs> you know, uh, that's, and then the, the capture is great too, but no, it's that uh, feeling of, aha, there's one. So at least I, at least I feel like I got a shot with that. Mm-hmm. Now, Larry, I have to ask with all of your years of experience, um, do you have a favorite turtle that you have personally tagged that you have seen, you know, season after season, or, you know, is there one out there in the wild that you have a personal kin to? <laughs> well, I, I'm not that, uh, well, <laughs> I'm a little more biology than I am. Uh, so it's hard for me to make the personal connection. But um, I can tell you that there was one individual that had served me so well. All right. So I will pick this one out of the batch. In terms of data? Yeah, exactly. This one has just coughed up so much good stuff for me. So I'll have to mention <laughs> this one. Um, so there's a set of shipwrecks offshore and there is a um, resident hawksbills on the shipwrecks. And I think it was like first caught the turtle in 2005. So standard capture, you know, bring it up, get the basics off of this particular shipwreck. So then I started a project with somebody to learn about the gender, you know, the, the, whether they're male or female. Well, well, when they're young, you can't really tell from the outside. So you got to take some blood, you know? And so I, I had a group of turtles about, 40 or 50 that I gathered up, including this one again. And we found out that she, in fact, uh, was a female. So I could say that she was a she. So and I knew I could get that turtle over and over again. She was a reliable, you know, member of these these studies. So then a, a couple of years later, I did a study on the genetics. So there she was. So I caught the thing again and brought her up and took a sample and off, the, off she went. So then we learned that her original, you know, place of birth, right, was uh, somewhere in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, if you're familiar with Mexico. Wow. Right? Yeah. So how, how did like you learn that? Here. <laughs> well, that's the joy of genetics there. We can do, uh, you know, we have, what is it? We have, uh, what, what's the one we have, the 23 or something or other? So you can find out lots about your history and we can find lots about history of the turtles. So we knew that that's where she had originally come from as a hatchling. So that was cool. So now I knew she was a girl. I knew that she was um, a uh, uh, out of the Mexican rookery. So then a couple of years goes by and I do a new study and I say, aha, I would like to learn about the movements of the turtles that are living on these artificial reefs. Because if we go there almost every day and we see the turtle there almost every day, well, What's its territory? Does it like leave for a little while at 10 o'clock in the morning? I, you know, we, we don't know. Like, how is it using the habitat that we seem to think that it's always hanging out on? So I got these satellite transmitting devices and everything. And guess which turtle was part of that study as well? Okay, this same turtle that had been through all the rest of it. And sure enough, she showed us among about five others that they sure enough do have this nice little territory and most importantly, they like to sleep every night in the same spots, you know, on the wrecks. So they had an area they go out and do their thing, but it was important to them to be able to focus on that particular shipwreck or ledge or whatever it was, in this case, shipwreck, uh, for their nighttime. You know, they go to sleep at night. I guess they feel want to feel nice and safe in there, whatever. But that was the that was kind of neat is that we really learned about in great detail about how this turtle moved around. So. You know, those batteries only last so long. So the, the transmitter, you know, kind of went out in about a year's time and didn't really see that turtle much anymore. You know, it's like she was getting bigger, you know, and we do know that 
they are likely to go back to their place of origin once they want to reproduce themselves. You know, we knew she was a female. So, okay, we probably thought she was getting old enough to go and have her own babies. Okay, so hey, life goes on. Okay, that was in 2010, maybe last time I wouldn't, you know, uh, in 2022, I get an email from some researchers in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico that they found this turtle nesting on a beach and it had these tags on it and it had a satellite transmitter on it. And it turned out that was that same animal that I had originally tagged um, in 2006, I suppose, who had gone through that whole thing and he ended up being found uh, laying a full healthy clutch of eggs on a Mexican beach. So that one probably has, if I got one turtle that I can tell the best story on, that's, that's the one. So. Does this turtle have a name? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah. I think we'll name her. We're, we'll name her Yucatan. Yeah, some, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think at the time I was naming my transmitter turtles after Grateful Dead names. So I think it was either Althea or Bertha or Cassidy or one of them. So I don't know if you like the dead. <laughs> That's hilarious. I actually just recently went to a Grateful Dead concert with John Mayer. Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't been to a dead and uh, dead and company now in at least what maybe just before COVID, I think. Um, but I was lucky enough to go back in the days with Jerry, so very lucky about that. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I miss him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's some out in the audience that uh, that agree with you there. Um, no, that's that's an incredible story. It's you know, it's nice to see that success story for all the hard work. And especially after, you know, over a decade of studying this same, you know, turtle and hoping that you can find her in the wild again and she's healthily laying a clutch of eggs. Like, I'm sure that's such a sense of relief and like a prideful moment. Like, wow, we stayed adamant to, you know, tracking this turtle. And, you know, if it weren't for you, saying, hey, I want to track the movement and figure out more and learn more and learn more. You know, who knows where she might have ended up, but that's incredible to find her after all these years and she's still doing well. I think that's a that's a awesome success story in terms of, you know, rehab and also just tracking an animal that can swim wherever they feel like. <laughs> that's that's the biggest thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was the um something that was kind of funny about my remember I told you I put the transmitters on the turtles here. And they had a very small localized territory. So when I would go off to the conferences or other meetings and I would show my slides, you know, and I would come up after somebody that was tracking leatherbacks that went all the way from St. Croix to Nova Scotia, you know, mine was just like this little blob on the map. You know what I mean? It's like this turtle just didn't do anything, you know, so it was not as impressive, but it, in its own way, it was telling its own story. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, my, my maps never looked as cool as everybody else's, but at least uh, they were proven a point. <laughs> so. <laughs> Man, well, that's awesome. Um, let's let's shift gears a little bit. Thank you for sharing that story. I, I was just genuinely curious if you did have a favorite, but um sounds to me from the scientist side of things that definitely does ring a bell for you. Um, let's talk about the future of save the turtle sea turtle foundation. Um, what does, you know, the, the immediate future and long-term look like for you? I know you touched base a little bit on the long-term, um, but what's, what's right around the corner. 
Well, to be honest with you, uh, we um, don't want to change too much. Uh, the organization has its mission. The organization uh, currently is really running along well. We don't want to shift gears too much. Uh, if there's anything, I suppose, we there, there may be new projects coming up that have still yet to be introduced to us that may, we may be interested in, you know, putting some funding into or whatever it is. So there's always those kinds of things, but we, we have a, you know, a, a consistent relationship with universities. We have a pretty consistent relationship, you know, with the various organizations that, you know, we partner with and everything. Um, we, we probably are, we just redid our website and everything. So after, the new transition from, you know, our former executive director to to ourselves. Now we've started to do a lot of internal upgrading. You know, getting everything more up to speed. So we've just redone our website. So that's going to be an ongoing project. We we need to kick in some more fundraising techniques. You know, the the boat program is great, but it's you know can't be the only way. Uh, that we gather, uh, you know, support and interest in the public. So I know for sure we're going to be embarking on some new kind of public awareness campaigns and that sort of thing to see if we can't broaden our audience uh, past those people that are just interested in the boats. You know, that's we love them. But, you know, there are many others out there that might be interested in, in helping us out and so on. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to not necessarily changing too much, but more streamlining, you know, what we've got going on. Uh, the, the Hawksbill project, because that's something that I'm vested in, has uh, some new directions. We're, we're doing a new gender study. Remember, I was talking about the turtle that told us whether she was a boy or a girl. Well, you can imagine that, if you remember this from the sea turtle books, that the gender of the turtle is related to the temperature at which the egg is incubated, right? So the warmer the temperatures become on nesting beaches, the more females end up getting produced. And there may be a tipping point at which there are not enough males being produced off of these beaches. So it's important that we gather as much information as we can on the ratios of males to females that are living out here on these reefs and these other uh, in-water populations. So uh, that is kind of a, a new project that we're undertaking. And uh, we also have an expanded um, uh, genomics program. Uh, so there are many things we can learn from the genes of these animals and some of the other species have been a little bit more of the focus, but I'm working with some folks at the University of Florida to take a little closer look at what we might be able to learn about hawksbills specifically through uh, their genetic makeup. So yeah, we've got, got new things coming, um, but the foundation itself, um, as I said, we're kind of streamlining things and we, we hope we um, kind of cruise on into next year anyway, um, looking forward to the next round of proposals. So. That's awesome. Seems like there's a lot of good stuff on the horizon. And, and, you know, personally for, for the foundation's future, I'm excited to see, um, as the students that you guys have provided scholarships for move through their, their doctorate programs and their, their research programs, how that ends up tying back to the Save the Sea Turtle Foundation, um, in, in the future and the long term. Um, so a lot, a lot of good things. Yeah, we'll need to do like a future uh, case study, like recap with some of some of these uh, these scholarship program. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have some students uh, currently working um, 
in uh, St. Croix, we've put uh, together a, uh, a Hawksbill Conservation Action Plan uh, for Hawksbills in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So uh, we've been focusing this year particularly on St. Croix. So uh, we have students over there that are, uh, are working on that in particular as well. As Sounds like such a horrible place to be placed. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't imagine having to be a research associate on a St. Croix. Oof, horrible. Yeah, yeah, it's rough out there, I'll tell you. But uh, the uh, that's one thing about it. That's what, hey, if you're going to pick a species to study, it may as well be the hawksbill, right? I mean, I don't, I don't have to worry about going anywhere, you know, other than tropical coral reef places. So, you know, it's, pick a turtle. That's the one, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's not half bad. Well, hey, this is our favorite part of this show, um, the fun segment. Do we want to get started with the wild stories? Or do you have any? I would say so. (laughs) All right. Well, let's see. I don't know. Let's see wild stories. Um, Let's see. I have... um, there's not too many wild stories. I mean, you know, being floating in the ocean in the raging lightning storms, that's, that's, I guess, a little on the wild side, but I've survived those like everybody else does. Uh, there's a fair number of shark encounters, but um, nothing particularly dangerous or unusual. Uh, but, you know, so I, I get the standard, what could be for some people, the thrills of being in the ocean all the time. But after all these years, I've become a little bit more accustomed to them. Um the there is a story that is not a wild story, but it I always thought that it had meaning. <laughs> uh, there was a remember I told you that uh, when I was uh, working with those turtles, raising them in those tanks, uh, we were open to the public, and you know people would come by and bring the kids or whatever it was to took it all the turtles in the tanks, and it was kind of an old fashioned kind of place where it wasn't like behind glass too much. There were these big tubs, and you know they're about three feet high, so you know little kids could kind of like you know look over and everything, you know. And it was it was great. It was a lot of fun. And so one day it was a slow afternoon, and I was uh, working in the afternoon, and I had this tank full of the baby turtles and. Hardly anybody was there. And this woman came in with a, with a little boy and oh, he was probably you know, like five or six years old or something. And uh, it didn't appear that it was like a babysitter. It appears to be anyway, because he wasn't saying anything like mommy or anything. It was just it looked, looked like a babysitter. So anyway, so uh, the little kid came up and he was looking at the, the, all this like imagine, oh, I'd say 15 or 20 little turtles about, you know, about the size of a half dollar or something. And uh, all swimming around in this tank. And uh so the kid was looking in there and he wasn't saying anything. And I said hello to him and he wasn't really responding. And so I was just going about my thing. And then I, I'm fairly good with kids, whatever. And so I, I, I came up to him and I was like, you know, well, I, I, I forgot that it was my job that I, I had to name all these turtles. And I forgot, you know, you're going to have to help me, you know, figure out how, how to give these things names, you know, so I know who's who. So, uh, you know, I started going like, you know, naming all these pointing at him. And he didn't really say anything yet. Still, he was being shy. And so I was like, okay, so next thing you know, it was feeding time. So I came around and I said, well, it looks like there's aren't any other volunteers around here. So I guess I'm going to need somebody to, you know, help me feed the turtles, you know. So next thing you know, I'm putting the food in there and helping this little kid. And sure enough, within a few minutes after that, the little kid started, I would ask him questions and he started to answer, you know, the questions like he wasn't being so shy anymore. And so as time went on, we were feeding him. And then I, you know, I said, oh, you know, that's Sally or whatever, all the names of the turtles and everything. And then the kid really started getting into it. And he actually started, you know, helping to name the turtles and everything. 
So after a little bit of this, the, the caretaker came up to me and she said, you know, you've done an amazing thing. And I said, what? And she said, well, the kid's been in the hospital for three months and hasn't said a word. So like the kid had not spoken to anybody, his parents or the therapists or anybody else. Right. And so literally, you know, 10, 15 minutes with a bunch of baby turtles. And uh, the next thing you know. I like to say he came out of his shell, right? Uh, but uh, no, the kid um, uh, came right back and uh, they came back every weekend ever since, you know, with uh, mom and dad, you know, after that for, for a number of years. So anyway, not a wild story, but it's a good one about how, you know, the turtles are fantastic ambassadors uh, for not only just the environment itself. You know, it's hard to preserve a, a place that people can only really see on TV. Vast majority of people never see the ocean at all, let alone go underneath it to see what's there. So, you know, how do you get the general public to be invested in protecting something that is so remote, you know, to them? And there's only so many hooks, you know, and, and we know sharks are one of them. Duh, you got your shark week and everything else, right? And you know your dolphins are another one. Of course, every little kid wants to grow up and you know, swim with the dolphins, you know, at SeaWorld and all that. And then you got the turtles, right? And so the turtles are the big number three. And so we can hook people into wanting to preserve the marine environment just because they're so um, they're so likable, you know, whatever it is. They have this certain charm about them, non-threatening. You know, something about turtles that, that people just have an affinity for. And so uh, to me, that's that's key right there. If you can use that uh, to promote the protection of the rest of the whole system, then the turtles have done their job. You know, so. Yeah, that's definitely something um, that, that we've heard quite a few times with different species in different ecosystems. Um, koalas, for example, in Australia, how they're kind of the poster child for conservation out there. Because if you get people interested in koalas, then you're more than likely going to be able to help other species. Um, and it sounds like it's the same way with, with turtles, especially in the Florida area, um, because I know that that's a, that's a big piece of the puzzle out there. Um, so, so true and, and glad that that animal and that species has that type of impact, not only, you know, for that child, but for others um, around the world too, because it is a catalyst to be able to conserve, you know, our oceans and, and other ecosystems around the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, well, Hey, let's, let's shift gears a little bit um, and start winding down the show. I know we covered a lot. Um, thank you for sharing that that not as much of a wild story, but definitely a touching story. Uh, seems like uh, turtles can heal um, from the sounds of it. Um, let's uh, let's provide some information to the audience. Um, how do people get involved? You know, like how to how to co how to connect and how to donate and help help your organization, your foundation. Right. Well, we would be thrilled if you would visit our brand new website. You know, uh, that's um, at uh, www.savetheseaturtle.org. Uh, it's uh, singular, so it's not Save the Sea Turtles. It's savetheseaturtle.org. Uh, and, of course, um, I mean, it goes without saying, any donations that are fantastic, that helps keep us going without a doubt. Uh, and, um, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, try to um, – especially for the boating community. We always say there's, we have a, quite an audience in the marine industry is that, you know, it's uh, the activities out in the ocean, whether it's clean boating, recycling, picking up trash, not littering, 
taken up all the fishing line. You know, fishing line is an enormous problem for sea turtles out there. So, you know, we, we really implore the people that are especially out there in those environments uh, to be good stewards of, of those environments. Um, you know, we work tremendously uh, we're in the Keys all the time. And, you know, that economy down there in the Keys, you know, is, is mostly based on the natural resources that they have. You know, not only does the commercial fishing, lobstering, crabbing industry require it, but the tourism industry as well. You know, without those lobsters, crabs and healthy reefs, nobody's when I say nobody's going to go. It's otherwise just a pretty hot place. You know, (laughs) Uh, so if people aren't getting in the ocean, people generally aren't going to be going to the Keys, you know. And so uh, it's that's my message out there is that it's in everybody's best interest to keep uh, every environment. But in our case, especially the marine environment, um, clean. So that's what I ask people to do <laughs> if they want to help. But yeah. as it pertains to specifically, you know, we, we, we don't have a large facility. We're not the kind of place that has a turtle hospital or uh, teams of people, you know, counting turtle eggs and that sort of thing. So the, the opportunities for volunteerism at our organization happen to be less than at others. But please don't let that discourage you. Lots of wonderful organizations are accepting uh, people. So help wherever you can if it's not necessarily with us with your time. Damn, that's awesome. I think that's the first time we've we've had someone plug saying, you know what, you know, you, you can help us, but don't be afraid to help other places. That's awesome. Right. Right. Yeah, that's incredible, Larry. Well, hey, thank you for uh, your time today. Is there anything else that you want to add to the conversation before uh, before we close it out? Uh, if there's anything, I just really uh, I have to mention that uh, all this stuff that I've been talking about with the project, the Hawksville project, it, it's not just me. I, I'm the leader. And I may be the founder, but it, it takes so many others in support of this to uh, require this to happen. I, I sound like I'm getting some kind of glo- golden globe or something. Like that. But my point is, is that I <laughs> want to make sure to thank uh, all the people uh, who have been uh, supportive of my work. It's volunteers, it's captains, it's uh, dive operators and dive guides. And, of course, the people that I've been doing the science with and everything. So I can't name them all. But thank you, everyone, uh, for uh, making this whole thing happen. Uh, and here we go into our 20th year. So we'll look forward to another 20, I hope. Incredible. Shout out to those villages that that make it work and that make it happen. Yep. Well, thanks for joining us on the show today, Larry. We're we're so happy to have you on. It was a fun one. All right. Thanks, you guys. Sure appreciate it. All righty. See you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Wild and Unprotected podcast, brought to you by Wildscape Productions. Follow us on social media at Wildscape Productions. For more information on our documentary series, Shoreline Stories, visit wildscapeproduction.com. Stay tuned for our future episodes as we have so much more in store for Wild and Unprotected.